You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, just slide your hand up. We have lots over here. Our ushers will bring one to you. We want you to have God's Word in your hands at all times. We are in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. Uh, If you haven't been with us, we're a church that is walking through Scripture verse by verse. We started in Mark uh, over a year ago, and uh, by Easter we're going to be closing that out. Uh, But we're excited to watch how the Lord uses in His sovereignty, by His Spirit, as as we keep walking through His book and how He's teaching us what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So as we return to the life of Jesus here, Uh, We're we're returning to to his life in Jerusalem with his disciples in his very few final days left uh, before he is killed and hung on the cross. Uh, Let's remember that back in chapter 11 and 12, uh, Jesus had been revealing his divine authority. Remember, he was disrupting the temple, flipping tables over. He was teaching the people. He was calling out the heresy and the hypocrisy of a, a corrupt religious system that was in the temple. And then in response to all of this, Jesus was facing a lot of backlash from from these groups that he was calling out. They they wanted him silenced. They wanted to destroy him, but they also knew that Jesus had influence over the people, and so they feared the people. They feared that the people might rise up against them. And so these groups got together, and they began hatching plans to trick Jesus, to incriminate him by his own words. In chapter 11, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they tried to trap Jesus with a question about authority, but they failed miserably as Jesus turned the question of of authority onto themselves. And then in chapter 12, the the Pharisees and the Herodians came after him. They tried to trap him in in a question of dilemma, right? Of whether a Jew should pay taxes to Caesar or not. But again, they failed because Jesus said basically both, right? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus didn't take the bait. And then last week we saw the Sadducees come after him, trying to trap him with a ridiculous question about the resurrection and marriage to which Jesus completely and masterfully destroyed their arguments saying to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. God is, not, uh, God is not God of the dead, but he's God of the living. You are quite wrong. Which then brings us to our text today, where we see someone else approaching Jesus. He's arriving on the scene. Jesus is still arguing with the Sadducees. And then this person, a lone scribe, comes with yet another question. But the outcome of this interaction is going to be quite different than all of the others. In fact, as this scribe hears what Jesus has to say, and as he responds in agreement with Christ's answer, Jesus then responds to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's quite a statement. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So this text today in our lives is is even going to beg a lot of questions to ourselves. Questions like, do I truly believe in God? Do I truly love God? Am I truly living for Jesus? Am I a citizen of his kingdom? Or am I just close to his kingdom? 
Am I, am I close, but yet am I still far from the kingdom? Brothers and sisters, we need, we're going to ask ourselves, are we almost Christian? Are you almost Christian? And so we're going to take it up in chapter 12, verses 28 to 37. Mark 12, 28 to 37. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is none other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We come before you this morning weak and needy. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that fills us. We thank you for your word. We thank you how the Spirit always works with your word. And we pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that your Spirit would use it and drive it deeply into our hearts, renew our minds, change our desires, and change our actions accordingly. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, we pray as, as we're contemplating this question, am I almost Christian? It's a good question for us to be asking ourselves. Could we be religious yet not quite there? Lord, we want to love you. Your scripture calls us to love you with everything we've got. And Lord, we know that with everything we've got, we still feel so weak. We need your spirit. We need your strength. We need you today. Thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as Jesus, we see here, is answering this greatest question about the greatest commandment, what we're going to see here today is that loving God requires more than just a mental assent, mental agreement, or even confession. In verses 28 to 30, we're going to see here this morning that loving God requires all of ourselves. Loving God requires all of yourself. We need to love God with everything we've got. Verse 28, so we see this scribe coming. One of the scribes came up and, they, and he heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, this, this scribe asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? 
Now, it wasn't unusual at that time for students and scribes to ask rabbis these kinds of questions, because at that time in history, the Jewish people held to all kinds of laws, all kinds of commandments, all kinds of traditions. They didn't just hold to the original ten that were given by God through Moses. They held to many commands. In fact, according to Jewish tradition and interpretation, the people had to obey 613 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and 248 positive commands. 613 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and 248 positive commands. That's over 1,200 commands or laws that they had to remember and follow. Can you imagine that? Trying to remember 1,200 of these to follow. We even have a hard time just remembering 10, right? Now, these 1,200-plus commands and laws, they didn't all hold the same weight. There were some that were lesser, and there were some that were greater. And so it was very normal for a scribe to approach a rabbi who was an expert in the law and ask him questions like this. Which of these commandments out of all of these 1,200 are the greatest? Let me ask you that same question. When it comes to all the imperatives in Scripture, all the commands in Scripture, which of them would you say is the most important? Which is the greatest command? What's the golden rule? Now, in the Jewish writings that they also had outside of Scripture, they had the Mishnah, they had the Talmud. And inside of those writings, we can see by looking at those that many of the rabbis at that time tried to answer this question themselves. One of the most famous was Rabbi Hillel, and he answered it this way. He said, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Other rabbis would also answer that the golden rules would be summed up from Proverbs 3.6, in all your ways acknowledge God and he will make your path straight. Another one answered from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. That was Rabbi Simlai. But Jesus, who is the ultimate rabbi, the ultimate teacher, answers this curious scribe with not just one answer but two. We see that clearly here. And the first part of his answer is in verse 29. Jesus answered him, The most important commandment, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're just going to stop there and focus on that one for right now. So what Jesus is saying is the very first part of the golden rule, the greatest commandment, is to love God with everything that we've got. That's our main point for this first section. Love God with everything you've got. Now, of course, the words that he's using here, as he often does, is direct quotation from the Old Testament, right? The very scriptures that the Jewish people, that this scribe, rabbis and leaders should know so well. And the text that he's quoting goes all the way back to when when Moses was teaching God's people, teaching Israel, the laws of faithfulness 
as they were getting close to the promised land. Moses was about 120 years old at this time, and his days were numbered, and he's preparing them uh, for entering the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the Great Shema, this is where Jesus gets his word. And, And they call it the Great Shema because Shema means to hear. It means to hear what God has to say. And essentially, it, it's, it's the greatest commandment for God's people to hear and obey. Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then Moses goes on, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. And he goes on to explain even further. That is the great Shema, to hear. And so what, what Jesus is saying and what Scripture is saying with him in unity is that loving God requires all of ourselves. It's total, it's complete devotion throughout our whole being. All our heart, all our soul, all our might, and Jesus adds to the great Shema with all of your mind. Friends, loving God is the greatest obligation upon our lives, and it should be the greatest ambition in our lives. And it should be saturated and practiced, as Scripture is saying, through every aspect of our being. That's what the Scripture is pointing us here to. Loving God requires more than just mere confession. It requires more than just saying that we love Him, saying that I believe in God. It requires your whole being. It requires your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It requires all of you. When the scriptures say, and when Jesus says, with all your heart, your cardia, your heart, to the Jewish people at that time, the heart wasn't just this physical pump, pumping blood throughout your body, right? It was the very core of a person's identity. It was the very center of your personhood. It's where you feel things. It's where you experience your emotions. And as Scripture says that our hearts are are naturally, deceitfully wicked, God wants to captivate our hearts. He wants our hearts engaged. And he wants to be producing godly desires in our hearts. And so let me ask you, when it comes to your heart, is your heart longing for Jesus? Are you desiring God in your heart? When you stop and think about God, what are your feelings towards him? You see... Your feelings and your emotions are not unimportant to God. Your feelings and emotions ought to be driven to be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. And when we are satisfied in Him and in Him alone, our identity becomes aligned with who He is. The old man starts to fade away. The new man has come. Jesus is producing Himself in us with all your heart, 
we also see that we need to love God with all of our soul. Heart and soul. The soul and heart are often used interchangeably. We see that in Scripture as well. But what we're getting at here, what the Scriptures is getting at here, is the spiritual side of our being. The spiritual side of our being. The invisible, the eternal side of ourselves. Because God wants more than just the physical. He wants your spirit engaged. We also see that we need to love him with all of our minds. The Greek word is psyche, with all of our minds. It really speaks about our intellect, about our thoughts, about our thinking faculties. He wants our understanding, just like in Romans 12, Romans 12, 2. We're, we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by how? By the renewal of our minds. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When our, our minds are being renewed, then we start to see the will of God and his will becomes our will. And then we see loving God with all of our strength. All of our strength really refers to our energy, our drive, our will, our volition. John MacArthur says, Genuine love for God is an intelligent love. It's an emotional love, a willing love, and an active love. It's a comprehensive, all-consuming love and singular adoration. So according to Jesus and according to God's word right here, we're seeing that God's love requires every aspect of our being through and through. God wants all of us. But the truth is that time and time again, we fail to love God that way, right? Would you guys agree? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our lives, so wrapped up in the stuff that we're doing, so wrapped up in ourselves that we, we're not wrapped up in God. Sometimes we don't even think about him. Sometimes we don't feel any affection for him. We don't desire him in our hearts. We aren't seeking his will. We, we love our own way. Even as the most religious, pious Jew at that time would re recite this great Shema that we just read this morning, uh, the most religious Jew at that time, and even your everyday Jew, knew the great Shema. It was a part of their life. They would get up in the morning and they would recite the great Shema, and as they were going to bed, they would recite the great Shema. When they would go to synagogue, they would recite this great Shema. And they would even, literally, place a copy of the Shema in a box, and they would place it on their doorposts of their homes, and they would put it inside of a tiny leather box, and they would strap it to their foreheads, as we see in Deuteronomy 6. It looks really holy. It looks really ambitious. It looks really dedicated. But the history of Israel reveals that just like us, Israel was constantly turning away from the Lord with their hearts, with their souls, with their mind, and with their strength. Turning to idolatry and sin rather than loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, if you study... First and second kings and chronicles, we see that many of Israel's kings and leaders did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see that over and over and over again, this cycle of sin. Sinful leaders would lead the people away from God. 
But there were some good kings. There were some good kings along the way. And I challenge you this week to go, go back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 22 and 23 and go and study about King Josiah for a little bit. It says King Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Josiah wanted to lead the people back to God, back to the God of David. And and through all this, he was restoring the temple. He was tearing down shrines that were out on the hills, tearing down altars to false gods. And as his priests were working and rebuilding the temple, what did they find? They, They found scrolls. They found the book of the law, the long lost, forgotten book of the law, the writings of Moses. And so the priests get this book and they read it to Josiah and he is convicted deeply that this is the God that we need to worship. This is the God that we need to love. And he led the nation to repentance and to love God again. And I love what 2 Kings 23, 25 says about him. As I read this, remember Deuteronomy 6. Remember Jesus reciting this. It says about Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Is a good king. Well, maybe you're not loving God like you should. Maybe like Israel, that the word of God is lost upon you right now. Maybe the word of God right now is dusty and it is forgotten. Maybe because of that, your mind is not being renewed. And your soul isn't full of God's truth and the desires of your heart are not being transformed and you're acting out upon your own will rather than the will of God. Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing here is that the greatest commandment, what Jesus is saying is the summary of of everything that we need to be about is that we need to be loving God with everything that we've got. And we see how the word is at the center of that. The rediscovery of the word with Josiah just produces repentance and faith And he loves God with everything that he's got. Loving God requires all of yourself. Every aspect of your being. And so then, as Jesus answers this scribe, we see that there's a second part to his answer, right? He says in verse 31, The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So so loving God with everything you've got, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's a two-part answer to the question. Which teaches us that loving God requires more than ourselves. Loving God requires more than yourself. Love God by loving everyone. Love God by loving everyone. Again, Jesus is, is speaking again As to what is already written, the words he's using would have been well known, again, to a priest, a Pharisee, and to this scribe, for sure. And it comes from Leviticus 19.18, where Moses is teaching God's people that in light of God's holiness, they are to be treating others accordingly. As God is holy and his people are called to be holy, they are to be treating others with respect, especially in their time of need. 
When it came to farming in Leviticus 19, the people were to leave some of their harvest in the field for the poor. They were to harvest the center, but leave the outside edges so the poor could come and gather it. When it came to grapes, they were to leave those that have fallen on the ground for the poor and for the sojourner. They were not to be stealing from their neighbors, and they were to be paying their workers fairly. And then in Leviticus 19.18, Moses writes, God writes through Moses, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The fact that Jesus is marrying, loving the Lord, and loving neighbor was a groundbreaking concept. Of course, the people knew that they were to love God and, and, and help others. That, that was clear in Scripture. But up to this time, no rabbi ever connected these two commandments as one great commandment. Jesus said, There is no other commandment, that's in the singular, greater than these, plural. No other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. It's one, yet it's two. So according to Jesus, they are intrinsically connected. They cannot be separated. If you claim to love God, the evidence will be proved or disproved in how you love other people. God says we need to love others as we love ourselves. You and I have no problem loving ourselves, right? Some of us might say, I, have a, I, don't, really, I don't really love myself. But even in that statement, it's even really focused on self. We have no problem loving ourselves. We're born lovers of selves. In fact, it's our biggest problem. In the flesh, we love ourselves so much. We're so focused on ourselves. Just think about the first thought you usually have in the morning. You can see who's at the center of that thought. We love our way. We love our opinion. We can do no wrong in our own eyes. That's our natural flesh. That's our natural bent. Just this past week, I experienced this myself in my life and so with Kim's job, we had to go to, to Staples to go and do some uh, printing. So I went there to help her. And if anybody's printed at Staples, a whole bunch of documents. It's a little bit cumbersome. It's not really fun. You have to have your credit card. You have to bring your memory stick. They don't provide any staplers. And, and the machines only let you print so much at once. You've got a cap on how much money you can spend at one time. It's, it's really kind of confusing altogether. So you have to do these multiple transactions. Well, Kim and I are in the middle of printing, and the credit card goes missing, and the memory stick goes missing. And so we start looking for them. Kim dumps out her purse. I'm rustling in my pockets. And I say to her, well, I gave them to you. And she says, no, you didn't. And I say, I'm sure I did. She checks her purse again, and I check my pockets again, and I said, I... I gave them to you. She says, no, you didn't. And it got a little bit heated. Well, in the end, guess who had them? I had the credit card stuck to my phone in my pocket. 
And I had the memory stick in that little tiny pocket in your pocket, right? And I, for sure I checked it. But in the middle of that, I thought I was right. I thought, I gave them to you. In the heat of the moment, my pride and my love for self was, was leading the way. That's just naturally what we do. And it's wrong. I naturally love myself first. I don't find it hard to love myself. As easy as it is to love ourselves, Jesus is saying that this is the way that we need to love others. It's easy to love ourselves. How easy or hard is it for you to love others? We need to love others quickly. We need to love others readily. We need to love others easily. If we claim to love God, it's going to be evidenced in how quickly we love others. 1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's a two-sided coin. They cannot be separated. Now, the Greek word for love being used in our scripture today is agapao, agape, love, which in the New Testament is a form of love that is characteristic of God. It's the way that God loves. 1 John 4, 7-8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. According to Jesus, according to God's word, if we fail to source our love from God, we will fail to exhibit godly love to our neighbors. The source of that love comes from God. We don't have it within ourselves. It has to come from him, and we quickly, speedily, supernaturally love our neighbors. Why? 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. He is the source of true neighborly love. So do you see that connection? Do you see how God's love leads to us loving others? How, and how loving others proves whether or not we truly love God. They cannot be separated. This is the very first time that a rabbi fused those two scriptures together as one law. And they call it the greatest commandment. It's the golden rule. Love for others is how we love God. This is radical love. You, you see the Jews at that time, had no problem calling their fellow Jews neighbors. But Jesus taught, and the church proved, that we were also to love Gentiles. The Jews were also to love their enemies, their neighbors. If true love from God is at work in us, that love shows no partiality. It doesn't see skin color. It doesn't see pedigree. It doesn't see social status. If you and I claim to love God, his love flowing through us must flow to everyone, no matter how different they may be. 
This is agapao love. This is love from God being renewed in us and changing how we love. So let it never be said of us here at Redemption Church that we are an unloving people. If that's what the world is seeing as they observe us in our daily lives, then it might be pointing to something at the root, a root cause in our heart. Maybe we really don't love God. Maybe, maybe we are almost Christian. Maybe we're not quite there. We'd have to question whether or not we really have God's love in us. Some ways we can look at ourselves and analyze this in our lives is ask ourselves this. Is our love for God evident in how we greet people in our life? How we welcome neighbors into our life? How we approach a stranger on the street? How we treat that lady checking out our groceries at the store? How we welcome new visitors into our body? It's not just saying, hello, it's I want to share my life with you. I want to love you. Every Friday, and I've shared this before, the street outside of our house is plugged with cars because the Muslims from the southeast corner of the city all gather together at Mackenzie Town Hall to pray. So from, I think, noon until 2, the whole street is just full of cars. And so I ask myself, am I revealing God's love in me and how I feel and how I'm tempted to treat those who are plugging up my street with cars? You know, if I leave for 10 minutes to go grab something, I come back and I can't even park. How, do I, how am I portraying God's love if I'm frustrated with that? Is our love for God evident in how we treat other people online? Some of us can say, ouch, about that one. How do we treat people in the grocery line as that, that lady is getting... You know, she still has pennies, even though we don't have pennies in this country anymore. She's still going for the pennies, trying to get the perfect change at the end. How, how is our love portrayed as we're waiting so impatiently for her? How about, again, in traffic? Is our love evident for people and how we open our homes to others? Is our front door open to a stranger? How do we treat the lowly? How do we feel towards those who are so different than us? How about how we speak about others? How quickly we can criticize, how quickly we can talk, how quickly we can joke about people behind their back, how quickly we can gossip. And there's many different ways we can, we can be failing in this. The love of God is not flowing through us. And so we need to check our hearts and ask, are we rooted in Christ? Are we rooted in the love of God? Is his love really in us, and are we loving him with all that we have? If we do, his love should be coming out of us. And so as this scribe is hearing this twofold answer, he says in verse 32, he says to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him, right? Standard doctrine in the Christian faith, there is one God. There is one God, not many gods. There's one God in this whole universe. Verse 33, And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
So as much as, as a faithful Jew could give and could sacrifice to God, if their hearts were not engaged with love for God and love for others, the scribe is saying the rituals and the ceremonies that they are performing are all meaningless. It's like leaving church today after singing the songs we're singing, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, believing in the truth, and then getting on the deer foot and flipping the bird to somebody. The driver cuts you off. Love for others is a big deal to God. Because it says so much about our own condition before God. Loving God requires more than ourselves. Loving God requires loving Everyone. And we see this lone scribe here is in agreement with Jesus. He sees Jesus arguing with the Sadducees. He asks him this question, and he's blown away by Christ's answer. And he's in agreement with him. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What we're seeing here is this, this scribe was obviously reading his whole Bible. He was checking what Christ was saying against the Scriptures, and he was agreeing with Jesus that loving God and loving others was the greatest commandment, that it was the greatest purpose in life. And as Jesus sees his agreement, he says that his understanding is bringing him close. It's bringing him close to the true faith. You are not far from the kingdom of God. It sounds pretty good. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, close is not close enough. Being near to God is a good sign. He's going in the right direction, but he's not there yet. He needs more information. It can't just be general love for God and general love for people that qualifies you for the kingdom. True love for God that is required for the kingdom needs more information. It needs more revelation. It needs to know the source cause. True love for God requires all of ourselves. Yes, it requires loving others. But verse 35 takes us in the right direction. So as this conversation closes with the scribe, he says you are near to the kingdom of God. Jesus says, and he's teaching in the temple in verse 35, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. When it comes to loving God, we have to remember that it's outside of ourselves. We have to love God through his son. As this conversation ended with this scribe and Jesus continues teaching in the temple, he began pointing out that the narrow understanding that the scribes had about the promised coming Messiah wasn't quite there. You see, the scribes believed that a physical human descendant of David would one day come as a national warrior, 
who would come and who would lead the armies and, and lead the people to rise up and to battle against Rome so that they could be free. And so with that, the scribes were so focused on bl- bloodlines, natural bloodlines, that, they, that all they had room for was the natural. That's all they were looking for. They didn't have room for the supernatural. And Jesus knows this. That's why he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, the coming Savior, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he says this, and this is the crux. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. We read that this morning. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. Again, it's a scripture that any scribe would know so well. But his quotation here points out the scribe's misconception, their misunderstanding of the messianic scripture. They believe that the Messiah would would be just a mere man, a physical, a mere physical descendant of David. But Jesus is showing them here in Psalm 110 that it's... Psalm 110 is saying nothing about a son. Psalm 110 is talking about a king. Psalm 110 is talking about a Lord. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. You see, Psalm 110 was originally sung as a coronation song of kings. And when you go back to the the original text in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the first Lord that you see there is Yahweh. It is the unspeakable name of God. The the Lord said to my Lord. The second Lord we see there is Adonai, which means ruler, which means king, which means sovereign. And what Jesus is pointing out here is that it's not saying son. So in a straight reading of Psalm 110.1, it would read this. The Lord God Yahweh said to my Lord, King, sit at my right hand. The Lord God, Yahweh, said to my Lord, King, or Sovereign, sit at my right hand. So as this text was widely understood to be prophecy about the coming Messiah, David doesn't say here, Son of David, but he says, Lord of David. Jesus says, as as David is is speaking by the Holy Spirit, that he's speaking prophetically about the Messiah that is to come. That, yes, Christ will be a descendant of David. We know that. Just go back and look through genealogies. Both sides go back to David. But more than that, he's going to be a sovereign Lord. He's going to be a sovereign Lord who is going to sit at the right hand of God until when? Until God puts all of his enemies under his feet. To sit at the right hand of God speaks of more than a human. It speaks of the Son of God, the Lord of David. And Jesus Christ is that Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he's also the Son of David. The scribes were right 
to understand him as a natural descent. But more than that, they need to receive him and accept him as the Messiah, as the supernatural Lord, Son of God who is coming and he's standing right in front of them. And Jesus concludes by saying, David himself calls him his Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. From beginning to end, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Lord of David. He is the Christ. He is the Savior that the scribes were to be looking for, but they missed him. This young man who was coming near was getting closer, but he needs to know who the Savior is. He's more than just a man. He's more than just a human. He's more than just a warrior king. He is the supernatural king. He is the God king. He is the son of God who came down from heaven, who put on flesh. He put on a body just like you and me, and he had bloodlines all the way back to David on both sides, and he lived as a man. Yet he was 100% Lord. To experience what we experience, who, Hebrews says, in every respect he was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. He was the one, as we said this morning, who loved us first, and he went to the cross willingly to take the punishment, to take the hell that you and I deserve. That's the Lord that David is talking about. He's the one who showed his love for us that while we are sinners... Christ died for us. He didn't come in earthly power. He didn't come as a worldly leader. He didn't come as just a human. He didn't come just to destroy the Roman enemies. He came in humility. He came in love to destroy the enemy within you. He is the only Son of God. He is the only one who could sit at the right hand of God until God puts his enemies under his feet. There's only one. This whole book that we have, this, the Bible, it's a book of love. It's a book of God's love for lost sinners. John 3.16. You're probably going to see somebody hold up a sign today at the Grey Cup. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We love because he first loved us. The Lord and Son of David, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, came down to save us. He came down to love us. It was the only way that we could love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't do it on our own. It's outside of ourselves. We don't have the heart. We don't have the soul. We don't have the mind or the strength to love God on our own and even to love others. It's outside of ourselves. It's supernatural. It comes for us. It saves us, and it produces that in us. To truly love others, we need the love of God. And we need the love that came down because we don't have it within us. Try and try as you might. You will not love God as you're supposed to. You will not love others as you're supposed to. We need 
love that comes from outside of ourselves. We can't love the world in a godly way, no matter how hard we try. It's outside of ourselves. So ask yourself, am I almost Christian? Am I near, but yet am I so far? Because close is not close enough. You're either in or you're out. In fact, there's a story about John Wesley. You can go and look it up for yourself. But this scripture, when he read that, Jesus said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This was a man who was already on mission in North America, already calling himself a Christian. But as he read that scripture, he realized that he wasn't a Christian. And it changed his life. Close is not close enough. You're either in or you're out. It comes, it comes down to what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Was he just a man? Or is he Lord? Is he God? Is he the Messiah? Is he your loving Savior? Cry out to him. Cry out to him today in faith and repentance. He wants to save you. And if you are saved, if you are a true Christ follower here this morning, as you are motivated by grace, as you are informed by God's word, as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can love God. You can love God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You can because you have Jesus, because you have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we're going to fail. But we have access to God, and he is within us. We can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Through who? Through Jesus Christ. That's outside of ourselves. The King of kings, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It requires all of yourself loving God with everything you've got. It requires more than yourself Loving God by loving everyone. And it's outside of yourself. You've got to love God through his son. It's the only way. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all the love that you have for us. We can't comprehend it. We, on, we cannot comprehend the love that you have for us. How we were going our own way. How we were dead in our trespasses and sin. How we were shaking our hands, bawling them up at you, saying, I'm going my own way. I don't want to follow you. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What love. We thank you, Lord, for the love that you have for your people when we don't deserve it. But then we also thank you that you have given us the direction of the scriptures to, to be making you our primary focus, that you need to be everything, that our hearts need to be desiring you. It's not just a confession we say. It's not just saying that we love God. It needs to be proven. Yes, we say it, but where's the fruit? Lord, we thank you that we get to love you. Thank you that, we, that you've enabled us to love you by the strength of your spirit, by your word. Lord, we don't have it within us. We thank you that you sent your son because the love that we needed for you had to come from outside of ourselves. Lord, would you press that into our hearts this week as, as we go about this week, as we think about what does it mean to love God? 
What does it mean to love others as we go out into our workplaces, our schools, into our homes, and all that we do? Are we loving others? And if we're not, let's backtrack and see what the problem is. Maybe the Lord has a lot of work to do in our hearts. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts this week. Lead us to love others. Lead us to love you. And help us to never forget that it only comes through your Son. We pray in his name alone. Amen.